If you have your, <clears throat> if you have your Bibles uh, still open, Psalm 55, I shall be going through, <clears throat> and uh, we'll be trying to make sense of it. As you uh, will know if you've been here before, Richard, our uh, pastor, is going through a series on faithfulness, <clears throat> our faithfulness towards God and his towards us. <clears throat> and so he has uh, timely made his absence, but has asked that we continue the series in his absence. And so I think it's Eric next week, isn't it, who will be continuing the theme. And so it is my uh, privilege, it's something of a poisoned chalice, this one, uh, to talk about faithfulness when one is betrayed. We looked last uh, week at uh, David's time on the run. You may remember he was running from King Saul. And, and was relying on his friendship with Jonathan for uh, his survival. Well, the story has moved on, and uh, David has been made king. He's there, he's been enthroned in Jerusalem, and uh, proclaimed the ruler of all Israel, but he is still not safe. As often was the case in the old world, uh, to be a king was not necessarily to enjoy security. And this time, the threat comes from his son, his own son, who is looking to overthrow him and seize the throne. I rather liked this graphic when I came across it. Betrayal. Someone offering the hand of friendship to the front whilst at the back hiding his violent intention. And certainly the, uh, the knives were out for David and he has been forced to flee for his life. He's on uh, the run once more. We're not going to look too much at the story uh, for any, any reason. It, it's also quite a grisly one. It's an unpleasant story. Um, we're going to look at it from a different uh, angle. There, there's arrogance. There's disloyalty. There is uh, a gruesome death. And it is this son of David, one of his sons, Absalom. You'll see the, the date approximately when this was going on. And he decides that he wants to overthrow his father David. And he recruits for his assistance a man who, we would perhaps call him a civil servant these days, someone who was a close advisor. More than that, this guy's name, Ahithophel, I shan't be saying it too many times, Ahithophel, he was a close companion of David. We may imagine that the, uh, the two of them go back uh, quite a way. But Absalom and Ahithophel conspire to overthrow King David. And David gets wind of this plot, and as he's done before, he goes on the run, he goes hiding in the desert. And it would seem that the psalm that Jonathan read to us, Psalm 55, was written by David during this period. Okay, so you can imagine then the historic context um, and as we come to the Psalms, well, I, I'm sure you've, uh, you've read a few Psalms in your time, and if so, you'll know that they're a rather unique form of literature. They're a, a, a hymn book, they're a hymn book for the Jews, they're praise mainly, celebration mainly, but they're also some very uh, deeply raw uh, and emotion-filled Psalms. We think of the Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and Yet there are also some other psalms where the psalmist seems to be rather over-sharing. 
He has too much to say, too much on his heart, and he blurts the complaints, the laments out to, uh, to the Lord. But these psalms, we, we love a good psalm. They speak into our hearts uh, in a powerful way, and this one, although it's a hard one, is no exception. I have to tell you that uh, sermon prep hasn't, you can tell Richard this, Rachel, sermon prep has not been, uh, been easy. I, I like to end up with a very well, I'm, I used to be a teacher, I, I like to start from the beginning and then work on through to an end and you will see the progression as, uh, as I go through a lesson and this has been hard because you've heard the reading and do go back to it, by the way, Psalm 55, and you will see the mind of somebody whose mental state is in a mess. It is quite simply full of psychological disorder. His thoughts are simply coming out one after the other, and he has not gathered them together to present in a neat fashion. You read it again, and you'll find that he's speaking to himself, he's then speaking to God, he's then speaking to anybody who cares to, to listen, and he's speaking directly to his betrayer, and it's all intermingled. There's, there's praise, there's worry, there's distress, there's joy, and there's confidence. They're all mixed up. How does one then make uh, sense of this? Psalm 23 is so much easier uh, in comparison. But we're going to have a look at this psalm written by a king, you see the crown, but whose kingdom was in disarray, whose kingship was under challenge from a rebellious son and from someone also whom he once considered a close friend. And he writes, we note the scroll, a sort of journal, a sort of intimate diary, if you will, and in it, we gain a rare, this doesn't happen in the Bible very often, a rare insight into a man's troubled state of mind. Because here he was. He was a man who was appointed king by God. He was anointed by God's prophet. He was crowned within the context of God's oversight and he was king, therefore, we might say, as our kings used to call themselves, by divine right. If anyone had an entitlement to be on the throne of Israel, it was David. Moreover, his kingship had been confirmed by victories over the surrounding nations. He'd established justice in the realm. He'd established peace throughout his nation. And yet, here he was, in fear for his very life and on the run. And we don't need to read very far before we get a state of his mind. And some of us may well uh, wish to identify with this. We notice then, during the reading of the psalm, how disorganized his thoughts were. He's on edge. He's, his mind is restless. It's distracted. He's flitting from one thought to another, seemingly never likely to come to a conclusion. And after all, put yourself in his situation, who could blame him? Whom does he have around him who he can trust? How long will he have yet to live? What has he done to deserve this? And of course, the greatest question on all, where is God in all this? How many times have those thoughts gone uh, through our minds? Now, I don't want to set off any bad memories for us, I, but I would think it strange 
if none of us had known at some stage in our lives a similar mental anguish, <clears throat> the anguish that betrayal, for example, brings. If you don't, then you are fortunate. Some have said, in fact, that betrayal is a worse pain than is bereavement. You've only to think through and work out why that is. And indeed, therefore, this psalm is used by Christian counsellors for any who have gone through periods of these panic attacks, anxiety, and indeed depression. This is a psalm for all of us at times. And we're going to walk with David this morning, and we're going to learn from him the concluding message that he brings the value, you've guessed why Richard chose it, the value of faithfulness. I'm going to dip into this. I'm not going to give you the verse numbers because it would just highlight how much I'm dotting about to and fro and the panic that is in his uh, mind as well. But you'll spot these. These are lifted from the psalm. As he tells us, he's under mental, under psychological pressure. My thoughts, he says, trouble me. And I am distraught. His mind is a mess. And he's under pressure emotionally. My heart, he says, is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. The very real prospect of his being killed is just round the corner. And, and we know this, if you're a doctor, you well know that the mind affects the body. There are physical consequences to his mental and emotional anguish too. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. And it's not long before he reveals something of that history that I, uh, I outlined to you. He won't mention his son. He won't mention the name of his erstwhile friend. But it is indeed because his anguish is down to this. It's because of what my enemy is saying. It's because of the threats of the wicked. For they bring me down. They bring down suffering on me, and they assail me in their anger. His unnamed enemies have the upper hand at the moment. And it's not just, it's not just the fact that his enemies are saying these things. It's not just that his enemies are threatening to usurp his position and take his life. There is even more to it. And David explains what for him is a very painful logic. You see, he says this. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I, I could hide you see, hostility is what we expect from our enemies. That's what they do. And David knew all about enemies. Israel was surrounded by hostile nations having arrived in the promised land. The nations around were hostile. And there was a group, particularly the Philistines, who made life difficult for the Israelites. 
And as a young man, even as a young man, David was called into the conflict with the Philistines. And you'll remember his conflict one-on-one with the Philistine giant Goliath. David knew about enemies. And he spent much of his adult life warring with Israel's enemies. So for David, enemies, mere enemies, are not the issue he is dealing with. The thing is, he's not really dealing with a sworn enemy from a rival nation instead. And this is the most telling line. It's you. And he turns away from talking to God, to any other person who might be listening. He now turns the finger of accusation in his mind as it flits to and fro. And he's now got in front of him the very man, men, who he has in mind that are making his life difficult. You. It is you. And you were a man like myself. And that's what we do with friendships. Friendships come from from two people of similar nature, similar outlook, similar cultures, similar visions, similar values getting together. And you were a man like myself. And David would have made friends with this person for that reason. And it is this bond of friendship that makes David's turmoil all the more. It's not just an enemy giving him a hard time. His friend has betrayed him. We were our companions. We were close friends, he said, and now you've turned against me. And indeed, we could say just one further step, and it's this. Still addressing, David's still addressing his betrayer directly, David says, you were someone with whom I once enjoyed sweet, and this is the glorious word that we cherish here, sweet fellowship. It goes beyond friendship. It's not just shared backgrounds, interests, tastes, and attitudes, but this is one of the great joys of church life, a deeper a more meaningful spiritual oneness, and those who are visiting us, we hope you feel that richness and closeness and that bond that we would give the label fellowship to. It is closer than friendship. It reaches beyond into an intangible realm, stretching, as we will know, into eternity. You and I will be in fellowship forever. You'll know our family Uh, circumstances at the moment. Say hello to Barbara on Zoom. And we have appreciated your solidarity. We have appreciated your thoughtfulness, your friendship. But most of all, here in what we might call the house of God, as David also used the phrase, We have appreciated your fellowship. It's been a great support to us. And so it would be unthinkable and unconscionable that one of you, 
having done that, having shown that fellowship, should then turn away, that you should have in mind violence towards us, you should wish our ill. How unthinkable is that? And that's where David was. Put yourself in his mind. It doesn't bear thinking about, but that is precisely what he was going through, betrayal by one who was so close. Does that remind you of anyone? We're approaching Easter, of course. And Richard, uh, when he comes back, he'll be covering this episode when Jesus was uh, betrayed. So I'm going to be careful not to step on his toes uh, too much. I simply quote, this is Mark's account of where Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, in his turmoil, in his awareness of being, uh, this is the impending betrayal by Judas and his impending loss of life on the cross, he says this, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And this is worse for Jesus than it is for David because David didn't know what was going to happen. He could only fear the unknown. Jesus knew. Jesus had this vision uh, very clear in his mind what lay ahead. And there's a nat- as he heads to Calvary, there is a natural response. Jesus, who was fully man, gave a fully human response to this that David, we will see as well. He wanted, and it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wanted out. Father, you remember the prayer? Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He wanted out. He knew what was coming. The natural human reaction is to flee. Let this cup pass from me. And David was no different. I don't know if you know the musical uh, uh, number. I forget. Uh, Mendelssohn, I think it is. Oh, for the wings of a dove. It's a beautiful song. But these words were said by a man who, let's be blunt, He could well have been close to ending it all. He could well have been saying these words as the prelude to him thinking, I'm done for, I don't want any more, I can't go on. We know the human reaction, flight or fight, fight or flight. And David chose flight. He's out of Jerusalem. He's into the desert And he's considering his options. But David knows that the flight he has taken is a good choice. We think of the desert as an inhospitable, a desolate place. But for the Middle Eastern nations, the desert is often a place where God speaks. It's a place of tranquility where you've got away from the difficulties that your life, your busy life in in urban surroundings has brought. And there is calm. I, says David, I would flee far away and stay in the desert. I would hurry to my place of shelter far from the tempest and storm. The desert is the place to go to. 
And as we wish Richard well on, on his uh, relaxation, we hope, we wish him well, send him our best wishes. And one of the things, the busy life, I spoke about this last time I was in the, uh, the pulpit, you'll remember, the busy life, the pressured life of ministry. We pray that he too may find his place of shelter far away from the tempest and storm and regroup and hear God speak. But there was something else that was pressing on David's mind. You think he'd had enough? There's one final thing. His mental turmoil, you see, wasn't just a selfish concern for himself, for his own physical safety. He was concerned for his city, for Jerusalem. Because, yes, it was his city. Yes, it was his capital. But more than that, it was the place where God dwelt. The God that appointed him by divine right to rule over the God's people, that was where God dwelt, in God's temple. And David sees turmoil there. He sees the forces arraigned against God's anointed king who also threaten to do violence towards God's dwelling place on earth. And he says, I see violence and strife in the city. Day and night they prowl about it on its walls. Malice and abuse are within it. With him gone, all hell breaks loose in Jerusalem. Destructive forces are at work in the city. Threats and lies never leave its streets. But as he gains speed in this verse, we see a, a resurgent confidence in him. He's rallying his mental strength as he begins to find a new confidence in God's sense of justice. And he says, Ah, but God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them, all their curses and all their violence. He will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. He is confident that God will avenge the violence that is being perpetrated in his own city. And for this reason, not just because he personally is being assailed, David calls upon God to vindicate uh, his name. Lord, confuse the wicked. Confound their words. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead. There are quite a few Psalms like this, and, and the newcomer to the Psalms, the book of Psalms, will occasionally be shocked by the language. But it is rare, in fact, I, I've yet to find any, any examples where the psalmist who calls down the wrath of God is not doing it, he, he's, he's not doing it for himself. He is calling down God's vindication of his name because he recognizes that God's honor is at stake. And it's important that God deal with it. He speaks confidently, doesn't he? About God now as one who is enthroned of old, who never changes. And having then thought about Jerusalem, he only now turns to himself. As for me, this is what I'm going to do. I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Not just once, there's not just the one prayer, 
But evening, morning, noon, I cry out in distress. His thoughts may well have been confused, his mind in anguish. We may know that. We may understand this. We may get why he's speaking in the way that he does. And we may share some of his confusion. But this is his solution. This is his confidence. He and God had, we use the word, history. They went back a long way. And right from the time when God protected him from Goliath, right from the time when God gave him the strength to overcome his enemies, all the way through to his becoming the king, the crowned king of Israel, God had walked with him. God had been faithful. God had been the one at his right side. And so he prays. And he prays constantly. Is that what we would do? in similar circumstances? Would we panic? Would we run? Would we call on a counsellor? What would we do when a cup of tea isn't quite enough? David's voice rings down the centuries and insists that we should serve a God who rescues those who call upon him. He rescues me, says David, unharmed, from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. It's an unlikely set of odds for David, but he has confidence. And sure enough, the story ends badly for Absalom and Ahithophel. It's a grisly end. But David experienced, once again, God's protection. What an encouragement for us, too, because David knew, and we know, that although we may be let down, betrayal the human phenomenon, our God says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. It occurs twice in the Bible. Do you get those two references? One was Joshua. The Israelites had just conquered Israel. They'd just come into their new land, and massive challenges lay ahead as they established themselves in this new place. And their leader was to be Joshua. Moses was forbidden from entering into the, the promised land, and he had been passed, that responsibility was passed on to Joshua. And the word of assurance to Joshua was this. And Hebrews... Do you recognize the book that's almost at the end of the New Testament? This is a word for us, too. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And this is how he brings the psalm to a close. He's speaking to us, isn't he? As if addressing us directly. Verse 22, you can see it up there. This is the response of faith. Cast your cares. Some of the Bibles will have the word burdens. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sort you out. He will resolve all the problems. He will make life a bed of roses. He will sustain you. That is his promise. He will keep you going. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And that is David's word to us. 
We may not be able to dictate to God the way in which he should come to our rescue, the time at which he should come to our rescue. We leave those aspects to his good pleasure. And I'd like to think, Rich is a great one for hands up. I'm not. I've done that too often in classrooms. But I'd be surprised if none of us were able to put our hand up and say, we have experience of God coming to us in our turmoil, in our distress, in our difficulties, in times of friendlessness, of betrayal even. I'd be surprised if there were no testimonies. Be thinking, won't you, as to what yours would be. God intervenes in our lives. Hallelujah. And we are grateful for it. We know that Joseph, we studied him only a few weeks ago, said to his apologetic brothers who realized their their shortcomings, but God meant all the things that he had suffered. God meant it for good. We know the Paul, uh, that Paul wrote in the, uh, the, the epistle to, to the Romans, God works together for the good of those who love him. These are the assurances. So keep talking to him. Keep faith with him. He won't let you down. It's been an arduous journey this morning. It's always nice. You'll know from my previous sermons, I like to keep it light. My word, this was difficult. (laughs) I'll leave the last word to David. And may this then be indeed our testimony. Turn it upon yourself. But as for me, I will. I will trust in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, as we come to you, especially today with this psalm in mind, we know we come to a God who is faithful. We know in in this fallen world, in this torn world, There will be torn relationships, there will be imperfections, there will be circumstances for us of our own making or outside, which will bring us down, which will bring anguish, which will bring us into a place not too dissimilar from David's. But may our response be the same as his, to be faithful to you, to keep faith with you because you are the God who keeps faith with us. You are the God who will never leave us, who will never forsake us. And in our lives, we know that all that you are doing is for our good. And we bless you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.